Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and I just love podcasting with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. My guest on today's podcast and I have a lot in common. We're members of the same orchestra, and we play the two most difficult instruments of all, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. But it is his instruments which is always allowed to give the tone, the A, before a concert starts, and we all have to tune to him. That's a lot of responsibility. Today's guest has done so much to make the oboe popular. Albrecht Meyer, welcome to today's Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast. I'm so happy to see you. Hello, my dear. <laughs> and in honor of today, I have worn my oboe t-shirt. Would you like to tell the listeners what you can read? Keep calm and play the oboe. Do oboe players keep calm while they play? Uh, we always try to keep calm, but it's very hard, actually. I just had a discussion Yesterday, I played two Corona concerts twice, and uh, it was very funny because the flute player next to me, uh, she, she asked me, so is it, why are you not getting so red in your face? And I say, yeah, um, sometimes I do, but only if I blush. But it has nothing to do with the pressure we need to play the oboe. Nothing. What, getting red in the face doesn't yeah, have to? Really? No. Because that's not what everyone thinks. They see pictures of oboists yeah. red in the face and you <laughs> yeah. say it's not because they have so much pressure built up in their heads. I think it's basically because we are so ashamed of, our, <laughs> of the sound which comes out of our instrument. <laughs> oh, come on. Your sound has been described as wondrous, as magical, as sublime. But you have said in an interview that you hate the ritual of giving the A before a concert. You hate it from the bottom of your heart. I don't like to usually start with negative things, but we'll build up to Absolutely. all the positive things. Absolutely. But why don't you like this ritual? <clears throat> I have to start from the start. From the beginning, benigning. <laughs> and <laughs> so, of course, like in February, I will be 29 years in the same orchestra with you and the Berlin Phil. And I haven't been there quite that long, dear listeners, just to put that straight. Oh, yeah, but if you've, <laughs> anyway, you just turned 29. That's right. That's yeah, right. Thank so, you. So, of course, Do you couldn't be there as long as I'm in there. <laughs> oh. But, you know, with me as a groofty, I'm very long in there. So I'm heading towards 30 years in the orchestra. And this whole hate thingy regarding this A ritual started in this orchestra because we just, you know, it's, uh, I'm obliged to give the A, but the problem is in our orchestra, nobody listens. <laughs> they, they, they just, you know, they talk to each other and they, whatever they do, they look up their handies, uh, the mobile cell phones and whatever. Not in the concert. And not in the concert, but at least in the concert, nobody's listening. So I, I'm just doing it just for my own. <laughs> and I think I tune with my own. <laughs> I'm quite in tune with my own. Um, sometimes I'm the only one who is in tune with the A. <laughs> but so this is the whole ritual thing that I've, I think... So you, f you feel it's, a, it's, it's sort of a waste of time because nobody's listening to you. You're giving your best A. Yeah. The most, and you're in tune A. Yeah, the, you know, the most lovely sounding, beautifully performed A. But in every other ensemble, especially like in London, Academy of San Martin in the Fields, or in Rome, in Musici di Roma, or wherever I go... 
everybody listens to my A. It's just in my orchestra. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I'm just telling the truth. I'm feeling rather truth. ashamed right no, no, now. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we had huge discussions with a concertmaster, and we have this. We have really lovely concertmasters, and I just think it's it's it might be not necessary in our orchestra. Uh, obviously, maybe maybe they don't need it. I think maybe it's a ritual for the audience to think to they hear this this tone and they think, okay, now we have to be a bit quieter, and yeah. the concert's going to start. Okay. Do you remember audiences? Is <laughs> I know exactly what audience are. This is the three people sitting in the in a two thousand five hundred seat uh, hall. This is the audience. Uh, two are sleeping and one is tugging his nose. I, I don't know. You you actually did one of the first online concerts, the musical moments, you know, when Corona, when it all started, we were all thinking this was the beginning of the end. But uh, your musical moments, um, the Deutsche Grammophon stage, online digital stage, uh, how, how did that feel? Getting, did you feel like you were getting back into performing or do you need that live audience? First of all, I have to say, obviously, everybody could read it in my face that I was short of a depression. And, uh, you know, when my festival in Hitzaka had to stop before the ending, I suddenly, you know, I fell in this huge hole. <laughs> And so I came home and, and then, you know, after one month, my, my little one, my little daughter came up to me and said, Daddy, you missed the audience, right? Uh, so she's six and she could read it in my face. So, of course, it was very, very difficult. So we all, you know, we had two, I think there two different kinds of musicians on this planet. One kind is they, they stop playing. They just <laughs> got to the, to the whatever, their pastimes. Bake, baked bread. Yeah, <laughs> baking bread, gardening and whatever. And the other kind, like Emmanuel, Pau and me, we, are, we have been practicing actually quite quite thoroughly and I love to practice so you know I regained some of my long lost skills so I think these kind of international streamings and this ghost concerts have been very helpful for us of course very different to do a concert with with no audience but still we needed this kind of concert situation. I love the story of Laura, your daughter, who, when you asked her what she wanted to play, would she maybe like to play the oboe like her daddy? She said, no way, I don't want to sit all the way back there. <laughs> so what do you want to play, like a violin or a bassoon or oboe? No, daddy, I want to stand there in front of the orchestra. I said, okay, nice plan, good. Let's work on that. But daddy does stand in front of the orchestra. You know, concert masters conduct from the violin. That's a normal thing these days or from the harpsichord. But conducting from the oboe, do you find that quite useful to be able to conduct with an oboe? How do you, how do, you do that? Actually, I think we might, the oboe players worldwide, we, we might have this ingrained urge to be a conductor anyway. But they, they are already in history, this um, whole bunch of oboe players conducting. And I started conducting like nearly 18 years ago, real conducting like Beethoven, Brahms, Schubert symphonies. And it is, I have to say, the oboe is my voice, of course, but still to stand in front of an orchestra and to be the one and to lead through a Beethoven or Brahms symphony is more fulfilling than anything I've ever did in my life. Sorry, darling. <laughs> it is an undescribable 
feeling. So I know exactly when, you know, this great conductor like Zubin comes to us or Seiji Ozawa or when Claudio was standing in front of us, this smile on their faces, I knew exactly where it came from. Yeah, so Simon said it was like uh, driving a Rolls Royce. Yeah. You just, you, you know, you just enjoyed all this fantastic machinery and knew that everything was going to work and, and you could just enjoy the ride. But you it's, still have to work, you know. It's just, it is, <laughs> with our orchestra sometimes, like Celi Berak is it. Yeah, when when I was conducting this orchestra, it was like driving a Rolls Royce, but I don't, didn't find the key. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's, I think, what he said after performing the Bruckner Seventh with us some years ago, before he died. But when you conduct, you play your own concertos. Uh, you, you play in your concerto yeah. from the front, and yeah. and the oboe is like an extension of the baton. Then, isn't it? It's really easy to give the downbeat. You know, I find it almost easier to follow if you do that than if a concertmaster gives a downbeat with his violin. When I think back, it is more the gesture and the posture and this slight little little thingies. This very the micro movements which help you. Of course, there are exceptions like like Carlos Kleiber when he did this huge with his swan like you know wings um, Albrecht is Im imitating a swan right now in the studio yeah I'm, I'm like a black swan of course <laughs> and it, you know of course even when he was doing it when Carlos Kleiber was doing it it was perfect but still very often like our beloved Kirill when he does this small very circle very you know defined movements it's enough you can read everything out it's of incredible this. with Kirill yeah. because I find we know we wind players know exactly where to put the notes yeah you know, physically, we know exactly where to tongue the notes, where they should go. And it's it's quite incredible. Usually conductors just sort of paint pictures in the sky, you know, and, and, mm. and interpret. But with Carol, it's it's quite quite incredible. It's I, defined. Yeah, very yeah. defined. Yeah. So you you are an oboist, you're a conductor. You've done so much for the oboe. I mean, my mother knows who you are. I went to Cuba where there's practically no internet and they have a picture of you up in their in their <laughs> high school. The oboe players adore you. You have made the oboe a household instrument. I mean, really, people know what it is. Congratulations for that. You've got a very long-standing career with Deutsche Grammophon. They've made many wonderful albums. You also made many albums before you move to them. Where does this inspiration come from? Because oboes don't actually have that much repertoire of their own, although you discovered a whole lot of composers I've never heard of who've written oboe concertos. Sarah, I truly savor your knowledge. You are really a very intelligent and beautiful person. But this, I hear a but coming somewhere. But this is definitely very wrong, what you just said. Despite, I, I read this everywhere from all of this, the, the, the musical critics, they always write and repeat themselves. But we have the biggest repertoire of all wind players. Really? Well, you see, I'm yeah. learning something today because I everyone know. always says, oh, you know, there's poor oboes, they don't have enough. So you're putting this right on the international podcast today. Yeah, let me just explain this because, of course, you're absolutely right. You, you just repeated what's what's the, the, the general knowledge. Yeah, I do my research. That's what uh, they told me. <laughs> absolutely. If you get together the repertoire, the concert repertoire of viola, trumpet, clarinet, flute harp. If you put all this together, then we still have more than, than these people. How come? It comes, you know, in, in certain times, like the Baroque period and the Mozart period, the classical period, we have like 
not only hundreds, we have thousands of concertos. But that's so not fair. Yeah, I know, I know. But <laughs> there's always a but, of course. You know, you have this fantastic Richard Strauss horn concertos. You have the Mozart concertos. What can I say? You have the really beautiful tunes. We have, um, you know, many concertos from composer you might never have heard of, you know, like Kojelu and I don't know, <laughs> you know. And we have Pokorny and, you know, we have really thousands, uh, literally why thousands did, of Why concertos. did composers write so much for the oboe and not for the flute or the horn or okay, the bassoon? That is, that is a very easy explanation. So first of all, uh, the horn without the ventile thingies. The valves. The, the valves. Is, is obviously a very difficult instrument, of course. Okay, it's, fair it enough. Is, it is still a difficult instrument with the valves, but the flute over a very long time uh, of its history has no sound. So absolutely no sound. So that, that means in the in the Baroque uh, period, for instance, if you hear a flute, it's it's very often it's doubled. It sounds like a recorder because yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a very quiet. very small yeah. sound. And later on, like let's say from the 1850s, maybe 1850s on, when the boom period came, the boom flute, a boom flute. <laughs> <laughs> then, of course, everything changed. Now, if you have this fantastic people like Emmanuel Pahu, of course, Emmanuel can, can play louder than the entire yeah, orchestra. Absolutely, <laughs> of course, he can play softer and louder and faster, like anybody else. But this has changed. So he is this young generation. So we had uh, in the oboe world, we had our highlights in the 18th century. 18th century, this was our... And I don't know, the composers loved us, but then the clarinet came on and the clarinet could play softer and louder and faster and higher and lower than, than we can. And the clarinet is obviously a really versatile instrument, beautiful instrument, but still, I think, if it comes to singing on an instrument next to the triangle, of course... I think we are the leading instrument. That's that's what every instrumentalist thinks of his own instrument, of course. Like even the timpanist thinks he is the... The, he had the Vox Humana on, in his timpani. We all have to think that. Of, of course, absolutely. That's why we, we truly adore our instrument. But I think, uh, you know, I teach my students and I tell them, it's, of course, it's good if you do your scales and do everything and have very fast fingers. But at the end, at the end of the day, it needs these three tones in a row where you really sing beautifully and, and touch people's hearts. You were a boy soprano. Did, did this sing? Singing, the singing tradition help you make your idea sound on the oboe? Because I know you didn't choose the oboe, your dad chose it for you. So it was yeah. like, son, you're playing that. Of course, there's a story behind it because, first of all, I was in the, in the boys' choir and this brought me to Haydn, Mozart and Bach. But still, at this time, I was not thinking I would be uh, one fine day a musician. And because my piano lessons were absolutely terrible, and my travel recorder lessons were very me mediocre. And then in the boys' choir, it was this kind of, you know, getting the touch, the feel of real music making. And then when the oboe came along through my daddy's urge, I was 10 
10 and a half. You would say in England, you would say half, half 11. Yes, but not for ages. That's <laughs> just the time. <laughs> half 11 is 11.30. <laughs> okay. So it's a, I love the, anyway, I love this term. I learned it from Jonathan Kelly is half 11. This is like half elf. It's Jonathan, fantastic. Jonathan Kelly is our other principal oboe in, in the Berlin Philharmonic. And he said to me one time, he said, you know, I'm, I'm getting quite famous now for the one who's not Albrecht Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't remember his name, but he's the one who's not Albrecht Meyer. I think that, I think Jonathan is uh, well known in his own right. But Absolutely. So. <laughs> he's a, a fantastic guy. So when, when the oboe came along, I was very small for a boy of this age. And my wonderful teacher, at this time a really wonderful teacher, Gerhard Scheuer, he saw something in me. He, you know, I was small and he thought, oh, he might be too small for playing the oboe. But then after two years, I was kind of, I left my colleagues who, who were much older than I was behind in a way. And this was, I had big problems to speak fluently. I was a stutterer. And this time... This was kind of my way of of conversing, of speaking. And this helped me along with my kind of lack of self-confidence. If, if somebody can't speak because he's a stutterer, it's very hard for his self-confidence. So when I got the oboe, you know, I was shown around from classroom to classroom in my school and everywhere in the, you know, in the school holidays and stuff. So I was kind of, yeah... I was shown around and this this made really my day. But was the singing, do you feel there's similarities between singing and playing the oboe? I, I feel very much there's similarities between singing and playing the horn because we play very open. But if I watch oboe players playing, I don't really feel that they, they are very open. They can I, more can look I see this pain. again? What was I'm making, a, I'm making a, a, a strained frog face right now. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. But there's always a but. Uh, today in my speech, there's also but, of course, I was trained like the German way to you know to do everything with a strength of muscle, muscle work, you know, and you could see it, you know, the reed, you know, the mouthpiece on the oboe, the reed, ah, that must be strong, and so, and then at the end, in the in the best case, there would come out a sound which is very unflexible, but dark and round and full and loud. Uh, this is absolutely the opposite of my philosophy on the oboe. So I tried to imitate these fantastic singers out there. And I learned a lot from, from my singing teacher, from Scott Weir, and from, you know, from, from all my, my uh, people out there. And Timothy Sharp, a fantastic singer, baritone. So it's more or less, I try a combination between being relaxed in my body, like the vocal cords and opening th open throat and so. But still, of course, to play the oboe, as, as you know, on the, on the French horn, you need a certain kind of tension, you know. You need a strength, a certain kind of strength, otherwise you will never hit the right note. And so I try this combination to be kind of flexible. So when you've been being a soloist or a conductor or recording a solo album somewhere, what's it like coming back and being in the orchestra? You've been principal over the Berlin Philharmonic almost 30 years. Um, what I love about our orchestra is that everybody has their extra stuff. Everybody keeps himself active, you know, in chamber music, solo playing. There's so many conductors in our orchestra. But we all come back and we all do our dienst, our, our, our you know, our services of the week. We have five five rehearsals, three concerts. What's that like for you? 
It is actually, as I put it, uh, as Simon has put it, Simon Rattle, he said, we are a bunch of very special people. Uh, of course, he... Uh, He's right, first of all. He's he's really right. I think he said 128 concert masters. <laughs> yeah, as well. Additional to that, yeah. So it is extremely difficult to, to you know, to, to say something in general about everybody. But to make it clear, you know, the pyramid in the musical business is has a very... The basis is huge and the tip of the pyramid is extremely small. So to be part of this 128 people, uh, this to be a member of this very, very special group is very hard. So it needs a very, very hard work since early childhood. So it makes something with us. We are, in the, in the best case, we are no egoists, but we are surely egocentrics. Surely, because we are the middle of our universe, of course, and we always have been. Otherwise, it would be completely strange. We have been working on our skills, on our faces, on everything, our whole life, and since early childhood. So we are very special people, of course. To come back to this wonderful group of special people, I think humbles us, uh, because if I do a concert, I have two hours of time of really getting to the to the audience, to the people. But in the orchestra, uh, sometimes even as a principal oboe or f French horn, you have maybe five seconds, maybe 10 seconds, sometimes even 15 seconds. But 15 seconds in, in comparison to two hours is nothing. So we have to concentrate sometimes like one week concentrating for this 15 seconds of beautiful solo. So this is makes it really, really difficult. But again, one of my fa <laughs> famous buts, but when I come back to the orchestra, I have done something for my self-confidence. That means I was either conducting or playing or both. So I've regained or, you know, you know, pumped up my self-confidence. And with kind of positive energy, I, I enter this beautiful group of people. And so, you know, I think it makes something with me... Uh, uh, I truly adore my colleagues and they are wonderful. And if they're additional, if there's one conductor like Kirill, for instance, who makes us happy with his performance and with his interpretation, this helps a lot, of course. If you have somebody whose interpretation is quite far from your idea or imagination, this doesn't make it any easier. I've often watched you at work from my position, you know, behind you, two two rows behind you. And I found the, the, the dynamics between the wind principles really interesting. You're like a little squad, you know. You've got you first flute next to you. You've got principal clarinet behind him and then the principal bassoon behind you. Hmm. Could you describe briefly what, what do you think their roles are? I mean, everybody has a solo, but the four of you work so closely together. That's a very clever question. First of all, our, <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> first of all, I have to say, I my philosophy found in the, in the last decades is is more important to listen to others than just to exceed some of your most beautiful notes or something. You know, it's really it's it is chamber music in a in a bigger scale, in a bigger perspective. And I have to say, it is uh, like with Mathieu Dufour, my really wonderful colleague on the flute. Uh, if I listen to him, his beautiful playing, sometimes remote, sometimes, you know, coming out, uh, sticking out here and there, um, it makes me wanting 
to imitate his playing sometimes. And sometimes it's just maybe I want I have some crazy idea I want to show. Maybe let's try out this. And then I give some, I try to encourage my, my colleagues. But basically, really, this is chamber music on a bigger scale. That means I have to listen to everybody else. And you know what my slogan is, especially when I work as a keep conductor. Keep calm and play the oboe, keep as calm, my shirt says. Yes, as oh. your shirt says so clearly. <laughs> keep calm and play the oboe. No, my slogan for the work with an orchestra is there might be somebody whose phrase is more important than mine. <laughs> and this is really my, my, my slogan for the last years because especially in the corona time when, when we started to play, I had the feeling everybody was like a, a, on an adrenaline go. It was a huge explosion of adrenaline. Everybody It was fantastic to finally not play in your living room, but to be in a Philharmonie, even though it was empty, it was still great to actually have an acoustic to play in. Absolutely. And I just, you know, recall the time when we did with Kirill this beautiful Mendelssohn Symphony Number 1. This beautiful light and colourful and leggero music suddenly played with this the the energy of IMG Benz with <laughs> 750 horsepower. It was crazy, I have to say. You know, it, it was. <laughs> Sorry, I'm giggling so much. I actually knocked the microphone with my nose. Total professional here. <laughs> yes, no, but you're right. We were so happy to get back to work that you could really hear it. Yeah. But I love that philosophy. Somebody else's phrase could be more important than yours. And you do work wonderfully together, all of you win principles. Yeah, it's really good to hear that you enjoy coming back to the orchestra. I certainly do as well. And you're right. It, you bring self confidence back with you and then I, I lose it again if I have one note alone in the Absol orchestra. Absolutely, you're right. This makes our life much more complicated and I fear as I talk to a lot of other colleagues, beautiful colleagues in other orchestras who do not have this chance to play so much solistically uh, as we do, for them it's much more complicated. They have only this five seconds, like in the Rosenkavalier or in Tristana or wherever. If you play in the opera and you have like four, five, sometimes six hours of opera, but you have only 10 seconds of solo. And then if you up, then this is horrible. This is horrible because... You do this twice, it'll be in your heart, it's a little scar. You do it three times, it stays in the head of all your colleagues. If you do it four times, you're short of a early pension. Nervous breakdown. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's hard to explain, but especially with us, the potential for humiliation on the digital concert hall is huge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's why I love the recording studio. And you love the recording studio too. And you have a very exciting new album coming out. Oh, yeah. I haven't actually been able to listen to it yet. I've seen the track list and there seems to be a lot of Mozart, actually only Mozart, but, <laughs> but not things that I would have necessarily expected to hear on the oboe. I came to Mozart quite late in my musical history. Because I was more into Bach and and Richard Strauss, my two favorites. When I came to Mozart, suddenly it you know it triggered something within me. You know, I I do as you do. I always prepare a new album for many years, and suddenly something you know I I do lists. You know, I make a right list and I say, oh, this could be good, this could be good, this could be good. And as I did, like in two thousand four, a beautiful Mozart album with Claudio Abbado. It needed like 16 years or nearly 17 years to, to redo a Mozart album, uh, but of course not with the same content. Con 
Content. 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 Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> I'm still learning. So I did this list and, you know, I reviewed this list for ages and over and over again. Of original works or things you thought might work well? Exactly. So I heard fantastic colleagues like Cecilia Bartoli or Daniel Barnboim when he, when he came to us and played something. I thought, oh. Wow, let me let me add this to my list. Let me steal it. <laughs> or, or or I heard Emmanuel Pau and Marie Pierre Longlamy playing this double concerto. I thought, oh, let's add this to my list. That for one fine day I might have. An you crazy actually stole idea. that, didn't you? That's a one. You, it's for you've arranged it for oboe yes. and harpsichord. And harpsichord. Oh, of course, I think actually my idea is my crazy idea is, but it it it, it will prove itself um, that for the for the normal listener. It will sound as if Signore Mozart would have written it for the oboe. Of course, this is the idea. And so I've, with a friend of mine, with two friends of mine, actually, I've made arrangements of these beautiful uh, pieces. Sometimes just we left it as it was. Sometimes we just uh, changed the key. And sometimes I just added some little spices. I'm really interested to hear the Gran Partita arrangement because it's just one of the most beautiful oboe parts uh, ever written, I think. Uh, that moment in the... In the slow movement of the variations, you know, when we're all going <laughs> and we have to play very, very quietly because Albrecht's on the top with this incredible solo. That's one of my favorite moments of music, I think, in the whole repertoire. So it's, it's really, you know, Mozart can be of such an inspiration for us, for our lives and for everything. And as I heard some years ago that even... Um, cows make better milk with listening to Mozart. So I thought <laughs> this might have some influence on our normal daily life. Well, that's certainly <laughs> a good reason to bring out an album about Mozart. Maybe, you never know. I know in, in, in Japan they actually put music to make some sort of shuchu uh, or whatever you call it. You know, the, yeah, yeah they, they put them on the vats. They put they play classical music into the vats because they say it makes be better better schnapps. Wow, that's um, good. So but I'm sure they do that to cows as well. Um, but yeah, if anyone's out there listening who has cows, and please play them this album and let us know. We would love to know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Albrecht, it's so fantastic to talk to you. And we're going to have to do many more podcasts to get to all the different facets of your life. But it's been wonderful to talk to you today. But you're not quite allowed to go yet. Because as you know, because you've been on my TV program a couple of times, I never let anyone go without doing the horn challenge, which means playing a few notes and being as embarrassing as you can um, on a strange instrument. We actually did it together. I played the oboe and you played the horn. I think all the cows left the country <laughs> listening to us. But of course, now because it's Corona times, I can't go passing my horn around. So I just wondered, instead of a physical horn challenge today, do you have any nice horn stories you could share with us that you've collected on your travels? I have a really beautiful story. A wonderful memory. I have a very dear friend, a wonderful French horn player, Bruno Schneider, or as he really puts it himself, Bruno Schneider. Schneider, it sounds Bruno, so wonderful. Yeah, and he has this really f great voice and really fantastic player. I played a lot, many, many years with him. And one fine day, uh, we have been backstage and we're just about to enter stage. And then I said, so what are you, next week, what are you doing, Bruno? And he said, yeah, I'm going to play, uh, I am uh, going to play this uh, concerto, this concert uh, from Richard Strauss, and I play this, uh, this number second. And, uh, 
And then said, oh, number second is this with this fantastic oboe solo. And so really like 10 seconds before we entered the stage to perform, I played it to him. And I played it like a toothless 85-year-old oboe player. (laughs) (laughs) And something like... So it, it, it was quite hilarious. And Bruno, he was laughing his head off. And then, so we had the concert. Everybody forgot about this little comment, about this little scene. Two days later came a little WhatsApp message from Bruno and said, yeah, orchestra plays great and Strauss is a lot of fun, but the oboe player played exactly oh, as no. you showed it. Oh no, that beautiful <laughs> solo. Oh, no. And I have to say, this is a, a like typical for Richard Strauss, one of the most ongoing and never-ending, beautiful, beautiful melodies. And of course, very demanding. I hope and everyone listening will now please go and listen to that, the second movement of Richard Strauss's second horn concerto. The, I mean, of course, there's great horn playing as well, but actually the whole movement is more about the oboe solo. So please go and listen to that in a nice version, not a toothless oboe player version. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Thank you, Albie. I hope there there will be a day soon when we can take up the horn challenge again. But thank you for coming. Good luck with the new album on Deutsche Grammophon. And thank you for being here with us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. And to all you dear loyal listeners, thanks for joining us. And we will see you back here very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.